Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. everyone and welcome back to She Dynasty. I'm very excited to introduce my next guest. Her name is Ruth Rathblot. She is a TEDx speaker, a best-selling author of her book called Single-Handedly. She wrote this book because Ruth was born with a limb difference and she tells her life story in this remarkable book. She's also a former nonprofit CEO and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Valerie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so, so excited to talk to you today. Me too. I'm ex- I've been looking forward to this conversation since we met at our LA book parties. So I want to start by telling folks how I met you. And basically, I was an, a, at an event at Chief, which is an organization you know, that supports women in business. And I was just there just working. And I noticed that there was an event going on. And sometimes they have private events. And I kind of wandered in because I noticed a bunch of women kind of heading towards a specific room and wandered in and, you know, kind of sat down, had no idea what I was sitting down for um, and sat down and literally was just so wowed and inspired by you and the conversation. Um, I think you brought me to tears a few times in that room and just really excited to, you know, kind of help tell your story and just everything that you've, you know, gone through and your message and what it is you stand for. It's just so incredibly beautiful and just excited. Thank you. No. And I think that's what we probably share in common is a sense of bravery and a sense of curiosity because you entered a room where you didn't know what was going on and you were curious and it's brave to to go out on your own and be adventurous and explore. So I'm grateful that you came in and yeah, the conversation as I recall, and you probably do too, was a lot of leaning in to listen to what we were talking about with this journey of unhiding. And, you know, I, I think what was amazing for me is it was such a learning, you know, I, to be really honest, I've never, I'd never been able to, you know, connect personally with someone who had a limb difference. And so, you know, I remember walking into the room thinking, gosh, I have so many questions once I realized what you were, you know, talking about and your personal journey. And then what I loved was you made it such a safe space for, um, for me to ask like questions that maybe so many people, you know, have. And you just were so open and honest and just were like, ask, you know, you're not going to, you know, get through it or understand it if you don't ask. And then what was amazing was you gave me a copy of your book, which, by the way, congratulations on it being, you know, an international bestseller. Amazing. Um, But so many of the questions I had in that room were answered in your book. I actually sat down and read it and, and totally understand why why it's a bestseller, just such a beautifully written book with so many great messages and meanings for anyone, anyone in life. And I just, again, love your message so much. No, thank you. And no, I'm so proud of my book single-handedly because it, you know, it's funny, people give you a lot of advice when you start on a journey of wanting to write a book. They give you a lot of input of what you should write about. And 
I kept coming back to my story, right? Because that's what I knew best. Yes, I I speak professionally and I'm out there and people ask me a lot of questions. And even at one point, Valerie, somebody said, oh, you should write the top 10 questions you get asked all the time. And I think what you're pointing out is even those questions that you asked and others ask are answered in the book because it's a, it is a safe place that I want to create when I'm speaking, but I also wanted it to be digestible for those people who could take go on a journey with me, this journey of hiding and learning to unhide. And in, in there, you may have found also this idea of how do we expand diversity so that it's fully inclusive because often we're not talking about it that way. Yeah, I think that was another big kind of aha moment for me. You know, as a business owner, we often talk about diversity and inclusion and what it means. And you just kind of opened it up to a whole new realm, you know, something I hadn't thought about. And so again, for me, um, you know, just really piqued my curiosity and really made me, um, you know, really interested in learning, you know, about kind of what you've been through and how to support others who may be going through the same thing. So I really, really thank you for that. No, thank you. And thank you for reading it too, because it's, it is, it's a journey. And, you know, I use my hand for your listeners. Like I use my hand because I was born with a limb difference and I hit it for 25 years from everyone. I use my hand as the tool to start to uncover what we're all hiding, because many of us are hiding things. Hiding, I have found in the research and writing that hiding is universal. Most of us are hiding something and we do it because we fear rejection, we fear judgment. And honestly, we also fear the voices that we hear in our head about that difference and what makes us different. And those are sometimes worse than the actual thing itself. Absolutely. Um, And I want to dig into all of the idea of unhiding in a bit. But before we get there, um, I remember, you know, in the room, you told a little bit about, you know, just your childhood and what that was like. And obviously, the entire story is told in the book. But, you know, really want to start from, you know, when you were a child, one of the things that really struck me um, in the room, you were talking about your childhood and how your parents um, really, you know, treated you as a normal child and never made you kind of understand or feel that there was anything that was different. And you thought in a sense that maybe that wasn't the best approach. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your childhood and what that was like. Yeah, I think it's it's so tough because I think parents, especially parents who have children with disabilities, I think there aren't a lot of rule books or guidebooks out there in terms of what to do. And so I know my parents navigated this space alone. They're, the doctors didn't know I was, I was both the days before sonogram. So it was a surprise to have me born with a limb difference. And I think what the nurse said initially was, oh, you'll take this little girl home and you'll treat her like you would any other child. You'll treat her as normal. And that advice seems like really good advice, right? Because it's, it, yeah, you don't want to make a child think that they're so different that they can't participate in activities. They can't, um, they're never going to fall in love. All those pieces of kind of lifelong milestones that we want to achieve. And I would say, I would just add on, add space and create space to talk about it because it is different. And so there may be, there were times, I'm not even going to say maybe, there were times that I was challenged with the stairs that were a little too long. There were times that, I felt like hiding it and they noticed I was hiding it. How come we didn't talk about it? Like it's that space of opening it up. And I, that's what I advise parents now to do is open up the space, even though a teenager is going to tell you they're fine. Cause that's almost like an automatic word that they have. They have a few others, but that's one. 
is I'm fine. Everything's fine. Well, okay. But keep asking because it's, it's that space because sometimes things aren't fine and we don't always get, we don't have the space to communicate about it. So I, I think that's, I would add on, it's not to treat people differently, but it's to add on and ask where, what's going on? How can I be supportive? What's happening? And you mentioned that your parents didn't know when you were born that you had um, a limb difference and they were surprised. Um, I, I'm super curious, you know, if, do you feel, you know, I don't know how this happened and, you know, it's always really creepy to understand if your phone is listening to you or not, but all of a sudden on TikTok, out of the blue, I'm starting to get videos of children with limb differences. And it's got to be listening to me because I've been talking to my kids about it and my family and literally this little girl named Emily popped up and she has a limb difference and very similar to yours. I'm like, this is too weird. Obviously my phone is listening to me, but her, her story was, you know, what they talk about is that her parents were told early on because obviously technology has changed. And there was a recommendation from her doctor that to maybe terminate the pregnancy. And, you know, she, they talk, the, it, this was coming from the parents' voice and how important it was to not do that. But I guess the question is, you know, tell us a little bit, because obviously you've talked to your parents about it, what their feeling was when you were born, how they handled that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two parts to this question. I think the first is, yeah, I've seen some of those TikToks too in the scrolling. I know why they're showing up, but different than you. I think my phone is still listening. I think that the disability community and pregnancy and birth have always had somewhat of a uh, interesting relationship, right? Because I think they're, when we don't know things, the automatic is, oh, there's something wrong. And so we should terminate. And some of us wouldn't be here if that were the case um, and not sharing out our amazing lives. So it, it's, it's conflicted. My parents, um, you know, I, I recently actually asked my dad because I had had that ideas and seen that that, those kind of videos. And I said, was there ever a moment that you thought about that? And he said, no way. We definitely didn't. And there, there was no way. First of all, they didn't know. And I said, well, in hindsight, if you had known, he's like, well, you can't ask that question because we didn't have that information. He said, but from the moment that you were born, there was this, they came together around we're going to treat this little girl like she can do anything. Like this is our firstborn little love. Like she's going to take on the world. And that's what they expected in many ways. So I think, but I have talked to people where they were given a choice um, about that. And I think for moms and dads, it's, a, I can't, I can't imagine what that must be like to go through. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously very different when you know your baby's born and yeah, and there she is, it. and you love her, and I mean, it just you know, as a as a mom who's given birth, I've been in that moment. I don't care what was born, you you would you would love your baby no matter what. But it's different if you're given information early on in a pregnancy. You know, it's it's hard to know you know what people would feel or think in that situation. I guess obviously a lot of it depends on you know maybe the severity of uh, what's happening. So there's lots to consider there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's amazing is because I'm part of an organization called the Lucky Finn Project, which is, you know, thousands and thousands of tens of thousands of families and kids. And what's been interesting is even myself, like people with differences and disabilities figure things out. We, I always say to new moms and moms who have kids with disabilities, like, you actually don't have to worry about, especially limb differences. Like we will figure all of this out. I figured out how to crawl. I figured out how to climb stairs and climb things, tree. 
Um, we figured things out. I figured out how to drive, figured out how to tie my shoe. Like that was a big, that's a milestone moment, right? For every five-year-old. I figured it out. Like we figure things out. That's kind of the nature of disability is we've had to figure things out. And I think sometimes people make assumptions about what we figure out and think we can't. And I always say, surprise, like this is, this is us. What is, what is your earliest memory? You know, obviously you were born with this limb difference, but what's your kind of earliest memory of, you know, wow, something is different about me from my friends or my family? What I remember, I think the tying of the shoe is a bit, was a big one. Um, like having to figure it out and not understanding why, like my father was trying to actually teach me how to do it and with two hands. And I had to kind of push him out of the way because I had to figure this out. I think riding a bike was similar in terms of, just trying to understand how could I hold a handlebar and brakes and like all of those pieces. Um, yeah, I think those are some early members. My father and mother told me a story about being bullied in first grade about it and having coming home and saying, this girl said something and they took care of it. Like they went into the school and dealt with the girl and the family. I don't remember that. Um, so I was never bullied. I think I definitely know there have been stare like the staring is probably the hardest part about having a limb difference or a disability is when people stare just a little too long. Right. I can imagine, you know, it's interesting. You, you wrote in your book, um, you know, there was a moment in there, such a simple moment that so many people um, remember as a child, that moment when it's Thanksgiving and you're asked to trace your hand and turn it into a Turkey. And obviously probably a moment where you're like, Oh, I can't do that. You know, and I'm just, and then I started thinking to myself, I went on a walk with my husband today and I said, what would you, you know, what would you ask her? And, um, you know, he said, I, I, he said, I'd really like to know what other things, you know, maybe those of us who have two hands take for granted, you know, that you don't realize little things like that, other moments. Can you tell us a few other, other things that maybe we're not even thinking of? Everything, like from putting on these earring backings today, right? You do it with one hand, putting on a necklace and clipping it, putting on shirts and buttoning them. Zippers like are sometimes hard, right? Like there's things that people do with two hands that they do automatically that they don't even think about. And that that's why even a couple of years ago, I started a campaign with the organization that I was connected to. And just the idea of tying your shoe, because I want it for one moment, because I have had Valerie, some friends who have said, oh, well, yours isn't really a disability. And I said, oh, okay, for just one moment, like, and I first wanted it to be a day, but then I was like, okay, one friend said, I'm not going to do this a full day of this. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I do a whole lifetime of it, but okay. I said, I would love you just to have a simple activity with one hand or with this is part of your hand and maybe there's a way to wrap it up, try to do it where you don't have five fingers. And I had them tie their shoe and then videotape it and say like, how is it? And they're like, I never understood. Like you make things look so easy, right? And I think that's part of the nature of disability and difference is sometimes we make things look easy so people forget and they then don't think that it's a disability because, oh, we've made it look easy and we've made them comfortable. Um, is, there, is there anything that you've just totally given up on that you can't do? Um, jungle bars as a kid were never like they, I couldn't do them. I'm like, and I don't even want to try. I'm like, I see kids now trying and I'm like, I'm good. I'm past that. No, there's nothing really. I mean, I am exploring taking guitar lessons because I think that's 
something that I never thought I could do. And now I've seen people with one hand do it. And I'm like, well, if they could do it, I can do it. Yeah, there's probably nothing. Oh, here's the church. Here's the steeple, that little childhood thing. Can't do it. Gave it up. Even so when I got something of like great significance that you feel like has has been, you know, just totally detrimental to your development or who you are. No, I mean, you know, I've even thought if slash when I ever got married, what would it be like to not have that a ring finger like the left hand? Well, you have a right hand, like, right. like yeah. yeah, there's yeah. nothing. Yeah, I was thinking about what you said about your dad trying to help you you know, tie, tie your shoe. Like there's no world where that would work. Cause he doesn't understand like how your brain is processing it and your cadence and your balance and all those coordination things that have to happen. It's like riding a bike. Like you can't do it for someone. They have to, everything has to align together in their own body for it to happen. So that's probably how it happened. So it must've been frustrating to have someone who doesn't have, you know, what you're dealing with, try to teach you how to deal with it. You had to teach yourself. You, ab- I absolutely had to teach myself. And what I'll say though, is it's nice to have people who want to support, right? It's not like, I think if I had just been left on my own to be like, oh, go try to figure that out. It was wonderful that both my parents were involved in terms of helping me learn and thinking it through my dad, especially my dad around the tying of the shoe and the driving and all of those pieces of trying to figure it out. Like, how is this going to work? The bike riding? Absolutely. Yeah. I think. So parents should be involved. It's not that I'm saying parents, they're never going to get it. It was great to have them there with me. And yet I still had to figure it out on my own. Like there were things. You mentioned a few minutes ago about staring being part, you know, the hardest part of this. And I'm sure it's something you deal with every day of your life. And, you know, one of the questions I asked you in that room, which was, I was genuinely curious to ask, and it was one of those like uncomfortable questions, which is, is there ever a moment in your life, and I I love the way you answered it, where you're not thinking about the fact that you have um, a limb difference because people are constantly reminding you because they're staring or looking. Are you ever able to just not think about it for an entire day or half a day or a few hours in a day? Or is that just not possible? What did I answer that was so good back then? I mean, I think I think you 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 had some sort of like a hybrid answer where there was, you know, moments where it depends, right? It depends on if 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 someone is staring, there's no chance that you, you know, you don't think about it because you're kind of getting in their head or wondering what they're thinking. Um, and then you also told a really beautiful story about a little girl and what she said to you one day, which I, I'd love for you to share as well. Yeah, no, and I think I'd probably stick with that hybrid answer because I I think the more comfortable I've gotten with my hand, the more I get to forget about it. Like in terms of it isn't all of me. Like I think when I was hiding, it was all consuming. It was, I literally thought about it all the time. I was so afraid that if someone found out, they wouldn't like me. They think they'd reject me. All those pieces, they judge me. All those things that we think about when, something is different about us. So it was all consuming. I didn't, I didn't give myself a chance to forget. Now that I've accepted it in so much more as myself as a whole part of myself, not all just not a part, not just a part of myself, but also I've accepted it my whole self. Yeah, I get moments of being able to just forget about it. Um, and be like, oh yeah, and surprise myself. Oh yeah, that's this. And I think there's also a part of myself now, Valerie, that because I talk about it a lot, 
and it's part of my passion project of this, it's like, I want to not forget about it. I, it's part of me. Um, and again, but not all of me. So it does, does it define you? It doesn't define me, but it's part of how I unlock the world. It's how I get people to be unhidden. So I use my hand as that tool and not because it's something not to be looked at, but something that I have pride in. Like I want it to be part, I want it to be part of me. Right. And for, for all those years that you were hiding, think about, and again, before Zoom culture and all of that, you know, there was going on dates and going on interviews and all of those things that people do that I'm sure were nerve wracking for you. Can you talk a little bit about those, those types of situations? Yeah. And they still are, by the way, <laughs> like there's still, there's still moments of dating that is hard in terms of how do you tell someone? Because, and I, it's, a little bit complicated in the sense of we don't ask people to reveal their full selves in any other context but disability, right? So people will say, well, did you tell them about your hand? And I'll say, well, no, I'm kind of, I'm protective in terms of, I call it hand worthy. Do they get to know? Like, is are they hand worthy? And um, it's interesting in that there's a side note to that, which is I was with some teenagers recently and they I told them this story about being hand worthy and they said, why would you want to be with a guy or any person who cared about your hand? And I said, that's so right on. It's so right on. So it's still a growing moment. There's still growth there that is happening. I think, yes, it's always the space of when does someone get to know? Because just like anybody with something different, whether it's their background in terms of their family upbringing, their college upbringing, their religion, their politics, when do you bring it up? Right. Or bad, bad uh, relationship history. We know those people or mental health. When do we bring it up? And so I think sometimes with disability, visible disability, we're supposed to say it first. So somebody has the choice. I take back that power and I say, when do I have the choice? Like, what's, how do I choose? What's my agency around this um, to choose when to tell someone? And I think you're right, though. There have been many people that I've either dated or gone on work interviews, et cetera. And just when does it come up? Right. Like, cause I hit it so much and it was exhausting. And it was almost like, I just would blurt it out to tell someone so that they could just finally know, but it took time. That was after several dates. Cause I wanted them. My theory was I want them to get to know me first right. and not judge me because of it. Right. And I think that that's, in terms of how we think about beauty and how we define beauty, I don't know that I it was mistaken to do it that way. Will you tell the story about the little girl that you told that day? I just loved what she said to you. This I was at an organization where I was working and I was walking through the hall on the way to my office and I noticed this little girl and she was sitting there bored. Like she was just literally had, nobody had given her anything to do. And I asked her if she liked to draw. And immediately she lit up and said, yeah, I, I, so I got her some crayons and paper and she kind of looked around and said, well, what should I draw? And I said, I don't know, sky's the limit. Like, you know, draw something that means something to you. And at that moment, as she was looking around, she noticed my hand and she asked me what happened to your hand. And I definitely gave her the routine answer that I share with most young people, which is, oh, this is something that's different about me. You know, we all have things that are different about us. This is what's different about me. And with that, she kind of just 
said, okay, it's cute. And I said, oh, that's really sweet. That's nice. I went back to my office, came back later to kind of to leave for the day. And she was leaving at the same time with her mom. And what I noticed immediately about her mother is that her mother had these large um, scars and they're called keloids coming out, raised bumps out of her neck. And I immediately put it together. Like this little girl must know to have, have seen people staring at her mom and have noticed that. And that's why she was perceptive enough to notice my hand and ask about it. And at that point, she gave me a picture and the picture was in a poem and it was so beautiful, Valerie. It was all about my hand and that my hand was the prettiest hand and that I shouldn't worry about anything else, but I should just love myself. And that was from a seven-year-old. Like I did too. I mean, it was so poignant, so beautiful and just a moment because I had never, no one had ever said my hand was beautiful. No one ever had said that they loved my hand and that it was, it was something to love. And I, at that moment was, I was 28 back then. And so that was a glimpse into, could that voice be different in my head than what I thought? And I immediately went to, no, she's just a kid, right? So that was a big shift for you to have this innocent seven-year-old child tell you that your your hand was beautiful, a total stranger. And I love what you said, you know, kids are just, they're so honest, you know, it's almost like if an adult would have done that, it's almost like you don't believe it. It's like what they're supposed to say versus, you know, what you get from a child, it is what it is. And that's the beauty of children is they're not quite taught yet what to do, what the right thing to say is, how to act, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So the fact that she was able to do that's pretty remarkable. It's amazing. And I think the other piece to your the puzzle of kids with is that they are curious. And what we do with children typically around disability is we do two things. One is I always there's always a parent who rushes over or a guardian and says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. You shouldn't be asking that. And so now we do two things. We say, don't be curious about things in life. Don't ask questions. And then we also signal disability is something we don't talk about. So what's that message? And then we grow up as adults thinking disability is something we don't talk about. So we perpetuate that. And then we do it to our own kids, et cetera, on and on. Um, Because it's okay to ask. It's not okay to make fun of. And it's not okay to stare in a a mean way, but it's okay to ask. Um, So so let me ask an uncomfortable question. So what is, you know, just for other adults who might see you out in the world who are curious, what is appropriate? What's not, what's acceptable to you? What annoys you? What would you rather them not do? I think, yeah. And then I think in writing single-handedly, this definitely, it was cathartic and it was clarifying. I think I want people to ask if they are being kind, if they're being curious and if they're being supportive. Like that's the reason that you're asking. It's not because you have this morbid curiosity that you have to know because why? Because it's something that's different. It doesn't look right for you. No, it's because you actually want to know how to support me. Is there something that you can help with? Is there some way that I may need support? And it's, and it's out of kindness. Um, So that's what I, I ask of people is, do you need to know? And why do you need to know? And how is it helpful? Um, because if it's not helpful, it's honestly, we don't poke at others in that same way, right? And so I think what 
annoys me is when we when we create black and white rules around this. Like it's okay to ask, but know why you're asking. And and also be okay if somebody doesn't want to answer and say, you know, that this is not not everyone is a teaching moment. <laughs> um and so yeah, but I'm I am I've raised the flag that I am okay to ask. But there may be people that aren't. This is probably a silly question, but I'm assuming there have been people who are unkind about it as well. What kinds of things have you heard? Yeah, like one of the things that I mentioned in the book early on is it was, and it was only two years ago at this point when someone said, um, oh, screamed across a parking lot, a crowded parking lot. Did you cut your hand off yourself? Uh, No, I didn't. And why would anyone do that? And the second, I think the other piece that is, hard and I, I take the prayers people will come up and touch my hand Valerie out of the blue like randomly and ask to pray for it and while I'll I'll take the prayers like I'm good like prayers can't hurt it's not going to help it grow and so and then the the pity of oh my god I'm so sorry that happened to you can I pray for it and I'm like well you you do know it's not going to grow like it that so the prayers I'll take because why not but the pity and the the false sense of hope. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that's annoying. Understood. I, I learned in your pre-interview that you actually traveled abroad and studied in France for a while. I'm just curious, is there, you know, a, a different approach to this in, in different countries? Did it feel similar? Tell us a little bit about the differences, if any. It's a really great question. It depends on where you go. I think that um, because I've traveled a lot and I think that different cultures understand difference in unique ways. I think some of the places that I've traveled that seem to quote unquote have the least are actually the most generous in terms of difference because it's a connector. I think disability and difference are connectors. We often think that they are, they keep people estranged. They're actually the greatest gift we have is when we can find something in common with our differences. And so having traveled to places like places in Africa or places in South America where um, they may not quote unquote have as much as we do, they're honestly, they've been the most generous in terms of my hand and embraced it and wanted to understand it and hold it. And, but in a, a way that's genuine and natural. Um, versus just staring. And I think oftentimes, I think in Western culture, we're taught to avoid difference, right? Not look at it, not ask about it. We keep our our guard up. And that's not natural. Like that's this whole movement of unhiding is this idea of if we unhide, we can actually connect with people in such unique and different ways. You also tell a story about um, running for office when you were in middle school. Tell us about that. That was a spark, a defining moment for you. I'd love to hear a little bit about that story. Yeah, I um, I had held middle school was big, was big in terms of my government life. Um, I was in student council in sixth grade, middle seventh grade president of my class, and then came the big eighth grade, being the middle school president, and my mother had a theater background and I had done a little bit of theater as a child and, but she, she was theatrical. That's probably the best way to say it. And so she wanted this to be a, a performance. And so she brought in saw horses and a plank and I stood on a platform and I 
didn't even know what that meant. I said, this, I'm standing on my platform. And what it did is it introduced me to two things. One is, obviously, I appreciate raising community and building community and getting people excited about something. And it also kept driving home this idea of leadership and performance and how they also go together. That, you know, how do you get your message out? How do you get people engaged with something? How do you take center stage and own it? Um, and that's what I'm doing now in my career. And so that I see the full circle of those moments. You you talk about the fact that you were hiding for 25 years. So I'm assuming there was a part of your childhood where it didn't phase you. And then all of a sudden you became self-aware and you decided to hide. So talk a little bit about how you physically hid for 25 years and how you started to unhide. And then tell us a little bit about, you know, what we talked about in the room that day was this idea of unhiding. And I really loved what you said. Everybody probably has something that they're hiding. Some things are just, you're able to hide because you can talk about them or not. And I love the examples you gave. Yeah. I started hiding at 13. So after that middle school victory of being middle school president, I go off to a new high school and it was a co-ed high school. And like most new schools and definitely being an adolescent, I think it's almost magnified this idea of wanting to fit in. And I go off to that new school. It was the first day on the yellow school bus. I get onto the bus. My first big decision is where do I even sit on the bus. And I'm not going to sit in the front because that's kind of where the two good, two good kids sit. And in the back are the troublemakers and the cool kids. So I choose a seat in the middle. And as the kids got on and on the bus and took different seats, someone stared just a little too long at my hand. And it was an impulse decision just to take my little hand and tuck it into my pocket, my front left pocket, just what was going to be Valerie for the bus ride. It wasn't going to be longer than that. I never had a plan of, oh, I'm going to start hiding it. I didn't even know that I was doing it. And I got to the school and I kept it in my pocket and I kept thinking, well, I'll just get to know some people and then I'll take it out. I'll just get to know some people and when you do that, now you have a big, a thing, a lie, because now you've not, you haven't shared a part of yourself with them. And I was hiding it. And it became more and more difficult to tell people because I didn't, hadn't navigated this before. So just like any lie, the more you tell it, the harder it is to stop telling it. And I even went through that first year hiding it in my pocket, wearing longer sleeves, wearing my book bag or carrying it under books getting out of class early so I could go to my locker and do the changeover of books, just fig- trying to figure it out, everything. And that after that first year, I told myself, well, you'll go back next year and it's going to be different. Like you're going to not, you're going to show it. I couldn't at that point. And even when I went off to college, I thought, well, I'm starting a new place. I'm going to, now I'm going to start to show it. I'm going to be a new person it was so ingrained in how I operated. And I was so worried. I made so many messages in my head that this was horrible to look at. This was disgusting. Like this was nobody would like me if I showed it. So that hiding, yeah, lasted. I mean, in in jobs, it, it lasted. In school, it lasted. It lasted. And it stopped me and really prevented me from living my life because I stopped doing that student government. I stopped doing sports. I stopped doing theater because I was, I wouldn't, you can't do those things and only have one hand. So 
I was very protective. It, it stunted my growth in that way. Um, and the, and living my life. And so I got to a point, I had gone through therapy, a lot of therapy, I'd done journaling. And I got to a place that I exhausted myself. I got to that space where I thought, I am not going to be able to have a relationship. And I had dated people and I would put up walls and almost find excuses, even if they found out when I, when they found out that it would be over for me. And I got to a place that I was exhausted with that. And I met a really incredible person who I invited into my life. And he showed me how to unhide. He showed me how to actually take my hand out of my pocket and start to touch it and look at it and really touch it. Like I had never allowed anyone to touch it. I had never touched it myself. And it was beautiful to let someone in. And that's really the first step of unhiding is acknowledging it and then inviting someone in to let them love you and let them show you how to love yourself. So that, that, that initial bus ride turned into 25 years of hiding. Yes. And there's this one individual who somehow changed the entire course of that. Yes. And, and do you think, I, do you, think yeah. you would have been able to unhide without his help? I hadn't before and I hadn't done it successfully before I had had attempts. And it's, that's the thing about hiding is you're constantly wanting to unhide. It's not like you are thinking, oh, well, it's fine. This is the way I'll live though. You do get to that resolution, but you can't, you continuously say, what would life be like if I wasn't hiding this? What would my life, how would it be different? And would I be connected? Why can't I just unhide? And you almost beat yourself up about it too, because it's, this isn't a way of life. Um, and yet many of us do it. And so yeah. let's talk about that for a second. So you talk about most people have something they're hiding and yes. to, you know, to your point for some, it's easier to hide than others. Can you give some examples? Yes. Um, and in writing the book and researching, and now the reaction after the book, Valerie, I have to say people are hi hiding is universal. I used to think maybe not everybody was hiding. I now believe that hiding is universal and it's varying degrees. So people will hide their education background. People will hide their mental health. People will hide their family backgrounds, their finances, their religion their voice boxes, stuttering, accents, et cetera. Um, people also hide, I mean, more than ever now, politics. Um, people are, and that we hide because we're afraid of judgment. We hide because we're afraid of rejection. And we're afraid of somebody deciding our ability or not our ability, right? So that's why we hide. And again, those voices that we've told ourselves and the stories we've told ourselves are often so much worse than the actual reality we've built in our head is much worse. And so, yeah, no, I've been, it's been amazing to hear. I mean, people hide their addiction. They hide, they, they hide. And it's this thing that if, what's the worst case, if you stop hiding, what will happen? And if you go down that path, wow, isn't it easier to live without all that hiding? I know it is, it was for me. Ever since we met, I've asked everyone who I am close to. <laughs> it's it's made some pretty interesting conversations. And it's amazing because when people feel like it's a safe space because they trust me or love me, they're willing to share. I mean, for some people I know because they're family. But, um, you know, it's it's really made some really 
really interesting conversations and actually made me feel closer to some people just because I just love that lesson so much. And I think, you know, that's your point is like embracing connections. You know, what's different about you is what's different, maybe different than, you know, what's about me, but, you know, just us all kind of accepting each other and supporting each other is kind of where we all need to be. And that's, you know, just really what got me about your message and everything that you're, you're doing. No, and we get to a deeper level with people when we actually unhide, right? And I think it's funny. I don't know what your experience has been with the the questions of un, of hiding. At first, people are like, "Yeah, hey, I'm not hiding anything." I, I don't, what are you talking about? And then when you delve deep into, or just ask the question, "Hey, I heard this woman who hid for 25 years. Is everyone hiding something about themselves?" You can you go there, like, and it's and that's why again I use my hand as the tool in. Because it allows then people to feel safe to say, well, if she's willing to share where she's been vulnerable, what can I do? And people's shoulders literally relax, they exhale, and then they start to talk. And it is amazing that what people are hiding out there. And and then realizing that there's a path to unhide. And it really, it's not that hard in terms of, it's not easy. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but there's some steps to be able to follow. And I created these four steps and they're, it's, you know, it's the idea of, yeah, acknowledging it first, inviting someone in to share. So I think you being that person, Valerie, for some of your friends is amazing and family. Then the idea is how do you build your community around that? And it can be two or three people. It doesn't have to be a worldwide global thing. It can be building community of support. And then the fourth step is starting to share out your story so that it helps someone else. And it becomes almost like a flywheel or a a loop that, wow, I've told my story. Now it's helping someone else tell their story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, you know, we touched on this earlier in the conversation, but, you know, I think part of, you know, what your, the message you're trying to get out is about how um, this affects diversity and inclusion and expands the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because, you know, when you said it in the room, you know, it really, again, as a business owner with lots of employees, you know, I, I, I had never thought of this before. And so it was really a learning moment for me and one that I think so many people need to hear about. So I'm really excited for you to talk about this. Yeah. And it was interesting because it was a conversation I was having around diversity and leadership. And it was, I asked a kind of a naive question at that, at one point I said, well, do you see me as diverse? And the answer back from a few people was, well, you're a a woman. And I said, okay, that's a lens of diversity. Because when we talk about diversity, we often talk about race. We talk about gender and maybe sexual orientation. And those are three important pillars of the diversity conversation. And when I asked, well, what about my disability? It became, well, we don't see you that way. So there was already a way that people were assuming what disability should look like and can look like. And it wasn't part of the conversation. And so I started reaching out to my corporate partners where I'd done fundraising for over 20 plus years and started asking them. And I'd been on a number of DEI panels. I'd gone to DEI panels and I was often concerned that disability wasn't coming up and I wasn't feeling included. And a really great contact of mine, they were hosting an inclusion week. And he said, why don't you come and tell your story at this inclusion week? And I said, I have a story. 
And he said, you hid for 25 years. That's a story. Tell it. And so I went and I told it. And what was amazing is two things unfolded from that is people came up and said, thank you so much for including disability in the diversity conversation because disability is visible and it's also invisible, both the mental health and the neurodiversity part of this. So thank you for including that. And second, thank you for starting to talk about hiding because that seems like something, like there's something there. And the disability part, I will say, has been putting pushing that into be part of DEI because disability doesn't discriminate. You can be any race, any gender, any age, any sexual orientation, and disability will affect you at some point of your life, whether you're born with it, whether you're you acquire one, or you take care of somebody with disability. You will at some point have disability as part of your life. And so it needs, it's a conversation for everyone. And it's the largest minority group. So I'm, I wasn't sure, is there like an official definition of diversity and inclusion and is disability not included? And are you trying to get it included? Is that a part of your mission? It's part of the mission. Absolutely. I think it's interesting if you I went to Oxford Dictionary and I looked up diversity and it talked about race and ethnicity. It talked about gender and it talked about sexual orientation. And then it said, and other. And I'm like, so disability and age and all those other things are just other? Like how that was the definition of diversity. And what's so interesting, Valerie, is diversity to me means different experiences and different perspectives and difference. It's about valuing those things. And when we start to exclude people from conversations, we set up a hierarchy and it's that's not that's not okay. There's enough room at the table for all of us to be as part of this conversation. Well, you know, I think Ruth, you have you have answered all of my questions and all I have left is um, what I call my rapid fire questions. So just whatever comes to mind, uh, first thing comes to mind, just a quick answer. So tell me, what is your superpower? Connection. I love connecting with people. I think networking and connection are the greatest gift that I was given. What is your greatest weakness? I would say moodiness. Like there's a mood, there's moodiness. Yeah. And it comes with my cancer astrological sign. So I'm blaming that for that. But yeah, there's a, there's a, a moodiness to like, because I want things to be different. And sometimes I get frustrated that they're not changing fast enough. If there was one skill that you wish you had that you don't currently have, what would it be? Oh, wow. I mean, you know, the first thing that just popped into my head is I would love to be a singer. I, I, I have been studying Taylor Swift for a moment now just to understand how has she done what she's done? She's really, and one of my friends recently said, she's done what she's done is because she built community. She cares about her fans and she cares about people from the beginning and she tells her truth. Her stories are about her. And so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in line there. I, I, I would love to see Harvard Business Review case study on how Taylor Swift built her built herself because she's done an amazing job at marketing. I, I, first of all, singing is the number one answer I get from women on She Dynasty. So I love that there's this pattern. Very interesting. Number two, I love that your answer had nothing to do with your with your hand. So that was, you know, I was really interested. It's a question I ask everybody, but love that. Um, and I, I'm with you on the Taylor Swift thing. I have two teenage daughters that are like counting the seconds until they go to this concert that, you know, every time you see 
every I, you've never seen anything like it, right? Whatever she's doing is pure magic. I mean, you have celebrities following her that would never go to a teeny bopper kind of concert. She's not that. She's she's created a magic formula in terms of and been and it's not magic, I think, because she's studied it. She has been there with her fans from the beginning, and she's built a community and she's told her truth. And I think that's that's why she has lasting power right now. Who is your biggest idol or or a mentor? I look up to people like I think what Brene Brown did around vulnerability is probably one of the the gifts that we've get, been given. Um, and so I love her work um, around shame and vulnerability because it 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 broke it down to to the level I could understand and then took us to the next level with it. Yep, my dream also to get her on this show. So yeah. yeah. We'll put it out there, manifest it. Trying, but yes, um, she also has a great story I'd love to tell. Um, I'm with you on that one. And what do you think is next for you and kind of in your journey? I think there is absolutely there's two things. One is there's absolutely a second book, which is global stories of unhiding, because I think that people sharing where they're hiding and unhiding is super powerful and it lets the world know you're not alone. Because I think often when we're hiding, we think we're the only ones hiding. And the second is a one woman show. And that's plan. My plan is by May of 2024 to at least have a draft that is rehearsable for out there. So a single-handedly the one woman show. Yeah. And my last question is what does success mean to you? It's me. The immediate thing that comes to mind is making a difference. Um, and it's, I've spent my career making a difference in people's lives, whether it be young people, setting up them up with mentors, providing them with educational opportunities, and now making a difference is the space around unhiding and creating a community and a movement around unhiding. Fantastic. Well, Ruth, I think that's everything. You know, I, I rarely like to turn my, um, my podcast into, an advertisement for anything. Um, but I have to tell you this book, you have really touched me. You've opened my mind to new ways of thinking. I really hope that everyone who is listening today will literally run and uh, buy your book because it's powerful. It really is. The message in it is so relatable to anyone. And again, it's called single-handedly. And um, there's a reason why it is an international bestseller. Just, just a remarkable job. And congratulations on the success with the book. And thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you for helping me amplify this message because I think it's, it is powerful and it is universal and will touch people in ways that they weren't even thinking about. Yeah. And the book is a, is a gift. I mean, in terms of being able to tell a story and have people resonate with people. And it was inclusive too, because it, wasn't just print, like it's on Kindle and it's on Audible too, an audiobook. So it's there um, for people to access. And that's what I wanted. Awesome. Well, I'm thankful that I wandered into the room that day and met you. And uh, just so happy to have you here today. So thank you again. 